Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. As the war in Ukraine escalates, Taiwan, facing threats from the Chinese Communist Party, is vowing to defend itself. NTD's Iris Tao has more on what their president says on Taiwan's National Day. Taiwan is celebrating its National Day with parades, performances, and a determination to defend its freedoms. And Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday addressed attention with mainland China, saying this about the democratic island's sovereignty. The consensus of the Taiwanese people and our ruling and opposition parties is to defend our sovereignty and our free and democratic way of life. On this point, we have no room for compromise. Tsai added that a war between Taiwan and China is absolutely not an option for resolving Beijing's claim to the island, and she reiterated her willingness to talk to Beijing. She also plans to boost the island's defenses, saying the destruction of Taiwan's democratic freedoms would be a major setback for democracies around the world. We will use our actions to tell the world that Taiwan will take on the responsibility of self-defense. We will not sit back and wait for our fate to be decided. U.S. lawmakers are praising Taiwan's democracy amid its National Day celebrations. Senator Ted Cruz called the island, quote, a beacon of democracy, adding that its prosperity and freedoms are an ever-present rebuke to the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda and repression. And Senator Marco Rubio wrote that Beijing's aggression makes it all the more important for the U.S. to support Taiwan's sovereignty. Meanwhile, in response to Tsai's speech, the Chinese foreign ministry says Taiwan is not an independent state and has no so-called president. The communist regime claims the island as its own and has escalated military threats against it after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island in August. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. The U.S. is paying close attention to tensions both in Ukraine and in the Indo-Pacific. Joining us to discuss the latest military situation, we have Harry Kazianis, senior editor from 1945.com. Harry Kazianis, thank you so much for joining us on the Capitol Report. Thanks for having me. Harry, as the war in Ukraine drags on, Americans are becoming less engaged. Uh, we're seeing what appears to be a renewed offensive by Putin on the capital of Kiev. Uh, what do you think is the strategy here or endgame, if you will? Well, I think in the short term, it's revenge. I think Vladimir Putin was highly embarrassed that his big signature bridge, which essentially linked Crimea to Russia, was you know damaged pretty significantly. Now, the bridge is being repaired. It seems like there is a slow amount of traffic that's trickling back and forth between Crimea and Russia. But this is a very big blow to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, that Ukrainian forces, at least allegedly, seems pretty certain that they did this damage. I would say probably special forces initiated this operation to get that close to that bridge and do that type of damage makes the Russian forces look incompetent. Long term, though, I think the Russians are going to start escalating. You're going to see them using a lot more cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, bombers. You're going to see the Russian Air Force go to the air a lot more, something they were afraid to do. But every time this happens, and every time there's an escalation on both sides, we inch towards nuclear war. And that's truthfully what I'm, I'm very terrified of, to be honest with you. It's an interesting point, Harry. And so from your opinion, has the, has the aid the U.S. has been sending in terms of the billions of dollars been money well spent? Or are, are we taking the proper approach here? 
Well, I, I think we need to understand this for what it is. The United States is essentially in a proxy war with Russia. We are literally taking some of our best military, military equipment, taking it out of our stockpiles and giving it to the Ukrainians, training the Ukrainians on it in very short time frame, and then deploying it into war against Russia. I think we need to understand that for what it is. I mean, that is highly escalatory. Um, we definitely want to be supporting Ukraine. It is not in our national interest to see Russia carve up a country like Ukraine that's vital to Europe, that wants to be part of the West. But at the same time, I think the Biden administration has not laid out any sort of strategy of what it wants to do and how it wants to help Ukraine. I, I think we need to understand the fact that we cannot give Ukraine unlimited arms forever with no strategy whatsoever, especially when Joe Biden said back in March that he was essentially open to regime change in Russia, something we can't do because Vladimir Putin has 6,400 nuclear warheads. So the United States needs to, to really illustrate what its strategy is for Ukraine, what it sees for an endgame, because right now we, we can't have a forever war in Ukraine, because I think at some point Putin will get desperate and it will go nuclear. Harry, uh, switching gears to another regional crisis, uh, we're now seeing a ratcheting up of uh, North Korea launching missiles over the country of Japan, uh, something former President Trump seemed to have gotten under control. Uh, why do you think we're seeing this aggression from North Korea? It's simple. It's because they can do it, because they know the eyes of the world for at least the last few years have not been on them. And since definitely since February when the war in Ukraine started, they understand that Russia and China, two countries that would be pivotal to, to containing North Korea's nuclear missile aspirations, need to be involved and need to help enforce sanctions, especially China, especially if you want to put new sanctions on North Korea for doing these things. So Kim Jong-un understands he could pretty much get away with anything at this point except a war. So you're going to see him test a lot of missiles, you're going to see him in the next few weeks test a nuclear weapon. You could take that to the bank. And over the next few months, until you get to the winter when the snows start to come down in North Korea and it isn't a really good opportune time to test those weapons, we're going to go back to basically the days of 2017 when it seems like every day there's a new missile or a nuclear test. Very scary stuff. Now, with regard to Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen has just stressed the importance of Taiwan being able to defend itself, something that's you know comes across as obvious. The U.S. has confirmed its support for the independent island, but uh, what will it take for Taiwan to actually defend itself? So, I mean, a kitchen sink approach. I mean, we need to take Taiwan and think of it as a giant porcupine. So if China ever tries to reach out and take that island, it is going to pay a damning price. You need to basically give them any weapon system they ask for. They, we've reinvigorated all of their F-16 fighters, but they need new F-16 platforms. The F-16 Viper would be a great example. Uh, the F-15EX that's coming out of Boeing is another great fighter. We can even go so far as to sell them F-35s. I mean, that would be a game changer for Taiwan. They need missile defenses. They need um, carrier killer weapons, different types of anti-ship ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. Uh, the Javelin would be great if, God forbid, Chinese forces ever landed on Taiwan so they can inflict the same amount of damage that Ukraine has done to, to Russia. But this is the time where we need to be thinking about these things now. The Trump administration did a good job of starting to arm Ukraine, starting to get them javelins. But I think we understand that the Obama administration made a terrible mistake not helping Ukraine earlier and not helping Taiwan either that much, to be honest with you. If you recall, there's a number of arms sales that the Obama administration was very skittish in, in sort of green lighting, especially F-16 fighters. So I think for, for Biden, now is the time to act. Now is the time to respond. We don't want to be sitting here five years from now and having China invade and saying there's, there was a way to deter it. We can deter that. 
Now, all of these arms that we've been supplying, all of these countries, and we plan to uh, supply with Taiwan, uh, they require semiconductors. Uh, with regard to Taiwan's semiconductor industry, do you believe it's critical that the U.S. start manufacturing semiconductors in the United States? Well, look, I think it's great that we have a partnership with Taiwan where we can get those semiconductors. But I think we've learned over the long term, whether it's COVID-19, war in Ukraine, you know, this globalist attitude when it comes to manufacturing. I think it was great in the 2000s when we were all singing Kumbaya and the world seemed like it was at peace. But when war breaks out, I think we understand that our interdependence, while it has a lot of advantages, has some problems too. So I think we need to be making semiconductors here, but I think we need to take a much bigger approach when it comes to our economy. We need to be producing more oil, more natural gas. We need to think about how we produce food. We need to try to be as self-sufficient as possible. Now, a couple of years ago, I would have taken a lot of crow for saying that, but I think Americans understand that, that you know, th th this world, if there is another global war or God forbid, another pandemic, we don't wanna be starving. We don't, God forbid, if there's a, a war with Russia or China, we would have a tremendous time trying to, to field those forces and build F-35s and things like that when a lot of the manufacturing parts come from very diverse global supply chains. So I think self-sufficiency is the, the word of the day. And when you've got millions of Americans who are looking for work that are battling inflation, I think that's a good thing. Harry Kazianis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks as always. Twitter blocked a post from Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo. The post promoted an analysis of mRNA COVID-19 vaccines by Florida's health department. They found a heightened number of cardiac-related deaths among men who got vaccinated. Latipo's tweet said, today we released an analysis on COVID-19 mRNA vaccines the public needs to be aware of. This analysis showed an increased risk of cardiac-related death among men 18 to 39 years of age. Florida will not be silent on the truth. Twitter posted its reason for the block saying, our current misleading information policies cover synthetic and manipulated media, COVID-19, and civic integrity. The media platform had Latipo's tweet restored as of Sunday morning. Over the weekend, Twitter moved to permanently ban Dr. Peter McCullough from the platform. Dr. McCullough is a renowned cardiologist and author of the book, The Courage to Face COVID-19 and we're happy to have him on. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Doctor, it appears that you've been totally banned from Twitter. Uh, is that the case and what explanation are they giving you, if any? You know, Twitter uh, claimed that I violated the community rules after thousands of consistent posts on scientific abstracts and manuscripts. Uh, this was very carefully done. I was bringing the world the truth on pandemic response through the media. And uh, this was purely of the highest scientific integrity and analysis. And my tweeting pattern didn't change. They simply said I violated the community rules. Now Twitter is uh, backing off with my legal and tech teams. Uh, they initially didn't allow me to download the data. They wiped out all the users in my account. And now they're backpedaling. We'll see what happens this week. But this is just another example of medical censorship by big tech on doctors who uh, have the freedom, according to the First Amendment, to uh, express their scientific views through freedom of speech. Doctor, I mean, PayPal right now backing off their stance here. They were going to turn people in um, for, for what they're, they're deeming misinformation. Uh, what's your take, California being the hub of, uh, of big tech? You know, I have to tell you, 
that the PayPal development, uh, that PayPal was gonna judge information or misinformation. Now, three years into the pandemic, I think Americans and PayPal account holders ought to be asking the question, why? Why now? And what stimulated PayPal to do this? They quickly reversed. You know what I'm suspicious of, Steve? I'm suspicious of government public health agencies or even the intelligence community putting pressure on PayPal to do something about COVID uh, and, and try to use them as an instrument to inflict penalties on those who are you know, speaking the truth on COVID-19. California AB 2098 is in the open. That is a doctor muzzle law that is intended to penalize doctors, potentially take their license away as they give full and fair informed consent regarding COVID-19, uh, its prognosis, uh, its management and treatment, particularly the vaccines. Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo uh, has just recommended against mRNA vaccines for men ages nine, uh, 19 to 39. What is your reaction to this? I agree with it. You know, I was on Fox News now uh, over a year ago saying no one under age 50 really should take one of these vaccines because the, the benefit to risk ratio wasn't there. Now we have hundreds of manuscripts published on myocarditis, heart inflammation, uh, Patone and colleagues in circulation has published a hundred fatal cases of heart inflammation. So when we see young people uh, now dying unexpectedly, dying either during sports or during sleep, in my view, it should be considered COVID-19 subclinical myocarditis and sudden cardiac death until proven otherwise. Dr. McCullough, uh, back to your, your being banned from Twitter. Um, why have you been so vocal and what has the response actually been from the masses on social media to you know, what you're saying? Now, I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history prior to COVID. I'm one of the most published now on the pandemic response. And I, I felt I had the medical authority and professional responsibility to lead the nation. I've uh, testified uh, twice now in the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates. Uh, I've messaged uh, the best I can through the peer-reviewed literature, as well as uh, with, through podcast and now Substack uh, formats. Uh, people look to me for my analysis, Steve, because I've been accurate and I've been conservative and reasonable in my statements. And we haven't seen any of that type of professional activity, any of that level of, of excellence from our public health officials. They've let us down greatly. Dr. McCullough, people do look to you for your analysis. Um, there are many people that appreciate your perspective. Now that you've been banned from Twitter, you've mentioned Substack, uh, where can people hear from you? Well, I have a website, uh, petermcculloughmd.com. That'll take you everywhere. The Substack just started. It's enormously popular and probably a better format to get analyses out uh, other than social media. I have growing presence on True Social Getter and all the other platforms. You know, the Twitter story is not over. Uh, Elon Musk back on purchasing Twitter offers some hope that uh, this really dark time of, of censorship uh, and Twitter manipulating people's accounts to advance the government false narrative. Hopefully this era is coming to the close with the acquisition and new management of Twitter. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you. Thank you. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.